Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. Well, thinking about this fall season, I mean, I know it's technically not fall for another three weeks, but... uh, it's not too early to get jumped in there, you know? It's not too early to go ahead and start thinking about it and feeling the cool fall breezes. And, and I really like to take this time of year as a church and think about why we're here and uh, what God had in mind and what he invites us to in being the church of Jesus Christ. And so. We're thinking a little bit about that and how it works, and I've been thinking about uh, this phenomenon that's going on in our culture, maybe you're not aware of it, so I'm here to help you, you know, think about it. And uh, I was thinking about the fact that uh, when I was growing up, and some of you can identify with this, it was a very different world uh, that uh, some of us grew up in, if we're of a certain age. And uh, I grew up in a neighborhood, and in our neighborhood, there was an agreement among the parents. I don't know if it was a formal agreement, but they evidently had gotten together at some point and promised to tattle on all the children no matter what you did. (laughs) Anybody else grow up in a neighborhood like that? Yep. And it was very restrictive. So if you acted out in any way in the neighborhood, uh, someone, what would usually happen is you usually didn't act out alone. You had accomplices. And so whoever those accomplices belonged to would punish their own children and you as well. And then they would call your parents. So you always kind of wanted to be at your house when you got into things because then you only got punished once. But if you got in trouble at someone else's house, you got punished at their house and then you got punished when you got home. So it's kind of double jeopardy. Really, it's probably against the law. (laughs) That's how it worked. And this restrictive lifestyle had a side benefit that none of us really understood as children, and that was... Our parents trusted us to go run the neighborhood because there were lots of eyes on us all the time. And parents actually took responsibility for each other's children. And so, therefore, we had this enormous freedom. We played outside all the time. It was insane. I mean, my parents thought nothing of me getting up on a Saturday morning and getting my bike out and taking off and not coming home until dark. And the rule was you got to be in before the streetlights are on. That was generally the rule. And we played. We were serious, hardcore at playing. I mean, we were very diligent about our play. And we were outside a lot. I'm, I don't know. We didn't know about sunscreen. We didn't know. None of that had come up yet. Probably it was because of us that it came up. And so we, we played outside continuously. And we played every sport that you could play. There was always a football game or a baseball game or kickball, or some game we made up. Very often games we made up that made no sense except they were fun and we played them. And uh, we played in the dirt and we played, we played group games. There were a lot of group games that required lots of people to play. So we played hide and seek. We played things like kick the can. We played king of the mountain. And we got seriously injured in these processes of these games. And we rubbed dirt on it, and we just kept going. We, we pioneered holistic medicine before, before it was a thing. 
and we were involved. I mean, we were, we were everything was first-person activity, and uh, we didn't sit around a lot. Though probably our first exposure to the art of spectating was we played sports and then we, we did watch sports. That was an acceptable thing to watch, and we, we did a lot of that. And so I, I don't bl blame successive generations for the evolution. I think kids today would love living in the freedom that we lived in, and it just doesn't seem like it's possible. The world is not as friendly of a place as it was. Uh, bad things have happened, and, and, and the fear factor is much higher. And so in that process, there's this phenomenon that's been going on, and that is we went from playing the games to watching the games, and then uh, video games were invented, and then we went to playing the video game version of the games. That, that was weird, wasn't it? It was a weird transition. And even, even there was an evolution going on in the video game world, and that was, you know, the video games used to be very passive, and then they've become active. So now if you're going to play a sports game, you know, you can actually have to swing the bat or roll the, the ball or whatever it is, which is embarrassing if you hurt yourself playing <laughs> a, a virtual sport. That's hard to explain over at the ER. But now there's this new phenomenon in our culture. I don't know if you're aware of this, but it's called eSports. And that is where people are now watching other people play video games, where they are spectating people playing virtual games. Now, when I first heard about this, because I've heard some friends of mine went to one of these events, and I said, no, wait, wait, I want to understand. You are buying a ticket to go to a venue, and you will watch other people playing a simulation of a game on a big screen. Yes. And you're happy about it. Yes. Okay. And just so you know, maybe this snuck up on you, but in the United States last year, this was a $1 billion industry. $1 billion with a B. 200 million Americans are committed to eSports. Selling out venues around the country. Staples Arena was recently sold out for an eSports event. I just wanted you to know about that phenomenon. That's a little odd, isn't it? I think human beings have a tendency to spectate. I think we, we have a tendency to sort of be comfortable in that role. And, and what's interesting to me about that is, uh, while I don't really care about the evolution of video games and how that's all happening, if that's what you like, I, I, it's great. But I am concerned about how this art of spectating affects us as the kingdom of God. In fact, even in a broader sense, how it affects us as a culture. Because it seems to me that we've become very good at spectating about the conditions around us about what's going on in the world and the form of spectating that I think happens when we begin to experience the need for change but an unwillingness to participate in change I call it pontificating uh, the, the reality is that what a lot of us have come to believe it seems in our culture is that it's just as good to talk about things as it is to do something about something that somehow if we speak about it that that's uh, that's the equivalent of getting involved just so we're clear, talking about something is not the same thing as getting involved in something. Amen? I just think this is a strange phenomenon. By the way, just so we have a working definition of, of pontificating, here it is from the dictionary. I, I think it merits expressing one's opinion in a way considered annoyingly pompous or dogmatic. <laughs> and, and this is what I think. 
There are tens of thousands of people whose job it is to pontificate, including mine. I mean, isn't, that, isn't it a strange thing that there are talking heads all over the place who convey to us information about what's wrong with the world or what's wrong with the culture or what's not working, and somehow we believe that pontificating is activism. I, I, venues like Facebook and Instagram and all of those, I, I mean, have you just listened? I mean, right now there's a terrible hurricane bearing down on the East Coast, and, and just the, the amount of stuff that ripples out of social media around an event like this, it's just, it's alarming. And that somehow we've come to Believe in our culture. If I post about it, I'm doing something. No, no. Posting is spectating. It's pontificating. It's not making a difference. And so this little series called Jump In is built around this idea. We cannot be content to spectate to the systems and the processes that are going on in our world and in our culture. That's not why we're here. We're here to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We're here to get involved. That the mission and the purpose of the church is to build rails upon which compassion and love and genuine change can happen in the world. We're not in competition or at war with the culture. We're called to minister to the culture. Okay, we're going to slow down and do that one more time. Listen, it doesn't matter the condition of the world. We are called to be salt and light in the world. We're not here to critique it or pontificate about it. We're here to, in some way, make it different. Change the world in Jesus' name. And that is a risky proposition. It's so much easier to talk about it, and it's so much easier to sit on the sideline and spectate, and it is so much more risky to jump in and get involved. And so that's what we're going to talk about. This little series is going to be built uh, around the life of Elijah. And so in order to appreciate Elijah and what's happening to him, we have to think a little bit about what's going on in the life of Israel. And so if you've been with us in the last few weeks, we've gone through the Bible. We've started in Genesis. We've made our way all the way through. Let me give you a really quick, quick recap. Genesis begins with the infancy narratives. We call them that. Uh, the creation story, the story of uh, Adam and Eve and Noah and... and uh, uh, the beginning, the Tower of Babel, those are all part of the, what we call the infancy narratives. And then we move into the patriarchal period and we're introduced to Abram and we begin the story of Israel. And, and we kind of end up at the end of Genesis with the children of Israel, uh, now a nation, but in Egypt. And we enter into the story of Exodus. And, and out of Exodus comes the period of the law and then the period of the judges and then the period of the prophets and then the period of the kings. And so... Uh, Following the kings, we have the uh, exile period and then the post-exilic period, and then we're ready for the New Testament. So that gets us all back up to speed, right? And so the story of Elijah, if you drill down into the story of the kings, the period of the kings, the story of Elijah is planted down inside the story of the kings. And in order to understand the story of the kings, you'd probably have to start with King David. Not the first king of Israel, the second after King Saul, but really the pinnacle of the monarchy. We think of the golden period of Israel as the time that David reigned, only the second king. But David did a great deal to expand the kingdom. He did a great deal to, to build up the kingdom. Uh, he did a great deal to bring peace to the kingdom. And so we really think about the period of David, uh, a man after God's own heart, 
uh, as, as kind of the ideal time. We think of David as a rather pious king when we think about good kings and bad kings in the story of Israel. We consider David to be one of the best. Uh, although David had tons of issues. Uh, he had an epic kind of failure going on in his life. And it wasn't just Bathsheba, though Bathsheba and Uriah, that's a fairly big deal. Uh, but then we also have just the dysfunction of his family. And, and when you read his story, there's, it's really a tragic, difficult story. And we have this scene in 1 Kings where David is dying and he's on his deathbed and he calls his son Solomon in and they have a conversation together. And the conversation basically is David saying, if I had my life to live over again, this is what I would do differently. As the incoming king, here's some things that I think you should know. And he basically begins in a very sincere way to say, I, I did a lot of things wrong and I, I would have done it differently. I should have been more faithful to God. I should have been more obedient. I should have paid closer attention to these things. And, and Solomon, you'll do well to lead the kingdom in this way. And, and don't, don't entrap yourself with all that other baggage. I wish I hadn't done all of that. And I think you have an opportunity to make it much, much better. And so this very moving, emotional, deathbed conversation between uh, Solomon and David is this really powerful scene. And then at the end of the conversation, it gets super weird. Because at the end of the conversation, now David says to Solomon, so we're going to serve God, and we're going to have the whole nation serve God. And oh, by the way, in order to consolidate your power, here's a series of assassinations I believe need to take place. <laughs> so this paradoxical sort of loving God and then acting out. And so Solomon inherits this kingdom. And Solomon, when asked by God what he wants, he asks for wisdom. And God says, because you've asked for wisdom and not for wealth or any of these other things, I'm going to give you power and wealth and all of this. And, and Solomon rises to power. And so Solomon is a builder and he builds a kingdom and he creates these amazing alliances because people are seeking out his wisdom. And as the, these kingdoms of the world come to Israel and come to Solomon, he begins to make alliances. And the way you made alliances was you married into the families. And so Solomon marries and marries and marries and marries and marries and marries and he has lots of wives and he has lots of alliances with all the surrounding kingdoms. And, and because of that, there's great power in the kingdom of Israel and there's great wealth. And there's so much money flowing in. All these trade agreements that Solomon made, there's just money flowing in. And so there's money for building and there's money for expansion and the temple is built. And all of these things are happening under the, the reign of Solomon. But with each of those wives, Solomon welcomes in new forms of pagan worship. And so he just welcomes them in. Just welcomes this one, and then this one, and then that one, and then that one. And so by the time you get to the end of the reign of Solomon, you have this kingdom on the outside that looks pristine and beautiful and powerful and wealthy and, and, and sophisticated and advanced in the cultures of the world. But inside, it's kind of rotten and falling apart. And the kingdom is handed off to Solomon's son, and his name is Rehoboam. Now, Rehoboam decides that he needs to, and I know this is riveting, isn't it? <laughs> you always, the history people in the room are going, yeah, and the rest of you are going, is this going to be on the test? <laughs> and Rehoboam decides that he wants to have a greater reputation than his father, but the problem is he doesn't have all of those alliances, and those trade agreements die with Solomon. And so that money is no longer coming into the kingdom. And so Rehoboam simply says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tax the people to death. It's very graphic language if you want to read it. 
I will pick the meat from the bones, he says. Well, people aren't super excited about that. And it turns out there's been this little piece of intrigue that's been running in the background. And running in the background is a story about an, a, an administrative official that Solomon appointed during his reign. And his name is Jeroboam. Now, I know that you probably, in thinking about Israel, think Jeroboam and Rehoboam were brothers. But they're not. Jeroboam was an official who ruled in the northern part of the kingdom. And he decided that he wanted to take the ten tribes of the north and create his own kingdom. And it was found out that he was staging a coup, against, a coup against Solomon. And so Solomon had him banished. He went to Egypt and he lived in exile until Solomon died. But now Rehoboam has instituted this heavy taxation and Jeroboam shows up again. And now with the anger, anger of the people because of all of the taxes, he successfully leads the ten tribes of the northern kingdom away from the two tribes of the southern kingdom. And we have officially between Jeroboam in the north... And Rehoboam in the south, the division of the kingdom into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Jeroboam leads the ten tribes in the north and Rehoboam leads the tribes in the south. If you were on the last trip to Israel, you, you had a chance to go uh, to the city of Dan. Jeroboam, realizing that he couldn't send people to Solomon's temple in Jerusalem to have them worship, he built two temples, one at Bethel and one in the city of Dan. And he had two golden calves carved to commemorate Aaron's work at the foot of the... So you had the law at the top and you had the golden calf. And so Jeroboam said, you know, here's a good angle. You guys worship the law down there in the south. We're going to worship the golden calf up here in the north. We're going to hark back to these old traditions. And so he planted a golden calf in the temple center at Dan and in the temple center at Bethel. And if you were on that last trip to Israel, you could stand there on the mount of the temple where the golden calf stood... And you could be right there. I'm not sure it's a good place to be, but you can. <laughs> and so the kingdom is split. And it's in disarray. And the northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah, they, they begin to make their way. The, the southern kingdom tends to be a little more pious, a little more uh, obedient to God. The northern kingdom goes far astray. And you have the, the loss of Jeroboam, and, and in his place, Nabad comes to power, and, and then Basha, and then Elah, and then Omri, and then Zimri, and then King Ahab. King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. And probably if we said, that's the pinnacle of the evil of the northern kingdom. It's a hundred years after uh, Jeroboam has taken the northern kingdom and become independent, and it's during the time of Ahab and Jezebel that Elijah hears the call of God. And the call of God says, Elijah, I want you to get involved. And I'm telling you this just so you understand. You understand the layers and decades of dysfunction into which Elijah is invited to come and make a difference. I think sometimes we think because it's old, it was better. I am old, and it is not better. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, maybe you're wiser, but listen, it hurts. It hurts a lot. It's not okay. It's not okay. Is it annoying you yet that I take my glasses on and off all the time? Well, that's because I can't see with them on and I can't see with them off. So I put them on and I'm like, well, I can't see, so I'll take them off. Well, now I can't see. It's getting old. And sometimes I think we romanticize the past, but, but, but just because we live in this day and age, it doesn't mean that it's worse than it's ever been. In fact, it's very much the same as it's always been. 
there's a cycle that happens in culture. And sometimes the cycle leans into a more conservative perspective that tends to lean towards piety and obedience. And sometimes it tends to run away and believe that we are the be-all to end-all and what we want matters more than anything else. But it's a very familiar cycle in the process. And after a century of dysfunction and turning away from God, and now Jezebel and Ahab in power, God taps Elijah on the shoulder and says, I'm calling you to jump in. And so the story of Elijah becomes the story in which he says, go to Ahab and tell him there's going to be no rain, there's going to be no dew, there's going to be nothing in the kingdom until you repent. And until God tells me that you have repented and then I pray for God to send rain, there's going to be no rain. And so there is no rain. And there, there comes this drought. And God says to Elijah, this is 1 Kings 17 if you want to look it up later. He says to Elijah, I, I'm going to take care of you. I have a little brook set aside and I have a place for you to have water. And here's what's going to happen. I'm going to send to you ravens in the morning and in the evening. And they're going to bring you bread and they're going to bring you meat. It, it, it's going to be a great setup. And you just sit out there and drink from the brook and meat and bread are going to show up. Notice in this story there are no vegetables involved <laughs> at all. God did not bless him with kale or broccoli or anything. <laughs> the raven said, no, nah, I, I ain't taking that. <laughs> no, nah, that ain't putting that in my beak. <laughs> Please don't email me. <laughs> and then we're told after three years, the brook dried up. And, the, and I love the language. It says... And the brook dried up because there'd been no rain for three years. Like it's the most logical thing in the world. I mean, if I'm Elijah, I'm like, that's what happened? I mean, somehow you got the ravens to carry meat and bread once, twice a day, but the brook dried up because there was no rain? You couldn't do a little something-something on the brook? That would have seemed the easiest thing you could have done. But the brook dried up. And he says, I've made provision for you. And there's a widow woman, and she's going to help you and see you through this time. And so he goes to the city that God has appointed for him. And when he gets there, he sees a woman at the city gate, and she's gathering sticks. And he says to her, will you bring me something to drink? And as she gets ready to go and bring him something to drink, he, she, he says, oh, and by the way, will you make me a little bit of bread too? And at this point, she sort of stops and says, I was insulted when you asked for the water, but I was willing to participate. <laughs> she doesn't say that, but in my head she does. <laughs> Just so you know, I'm gathering sticks because we've been on this journey and there's been no rain and the famine is overwhelming and we are starving. And I'm gathering sticks because I have a little bit of bread, a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil and I'm going to make one last little piece of bread, and I'm going to cook it, and then my son and I are going to eat our last meal, and we're going to die. Now, the typical response to this would not be Elijah's response. But what he says is, okay, but first, make me some bread. And then he says to her, and... Then the flour will never run out, and the oil will never run dry. And she does. 
she takes the oil and she takes the flour and she makes a little cake and she presents it to Elijah. And we're told now in the ensuing years that follow, the flour is always available and the oil is always present and she's able to make bread every day and feed her child and feed Elijah and feed herself. This arrangement continues as the drought continues until one day her son becomes ill and her son gets sicker and sicker and we're told her son ceases to breathe. And she comes to Elijah and she says, what, what is this? I decided to participate. I decided to jump in. I decided to be a part of whatever this is. And this is the reward. And Elijah scoops up the boy and takes him upstairs. And he sort of has it out with God. And he goes, well, <laughs> this woman was willing to jump in and look at the result. Is this how this is supposed to work? I don't think so. And he prays a simple and powerful prayer. And we're told that the child revives. And he goes downstairs and he hands him back to the mom. And the mom now says... Now I know that you are truly a prophet of God and that God's power is present with you. And if I'd have been Elijah, I'd have been going, what? It's been years you've been going to the pot and finding flour and oil. You know, is it, is it never enough? I mean, how much do you have to have before you're convinced that God's involved somewhere in this process? How many miracles do you have to see? And I see some things that are really important about the decision to jump in. Number one, the decision to jump in always involves scarcity. It always involves scarcity. So that what this woman is invited to do is to give Elijah flour and oil. It's the one thing she doesn't have enough of. And, and I think what keeps us from becoming involved, what keeps us from jumping in is that we all have some sense of scarcity. We all have some sense of not having enough. And for most of us, that it's not necessarily about money or time, though those things do come up. I don't know about you, but it's about emotional energy. I'm not sure how to take on anything else. I've told you this story before, but when I was growing up and I was uh, about 15 or 16, and I really felt like God was calling me into ministry, I had a conversation with my pastor, and my pastor said, Okay, sounds like God's calling you into ministry, so here's what we're going to do. From now on, whenever somebody asks, you're going to say yes. That's going to be your role. So when you get asked to speak, you need as many chances to get better at this as you can. So, so you're going to say yes. So sure enough, you know, at 15, 16 years old, you know, I'd get a call and they'd say, can you come over to the nursing home and do a sermon on Sunday afternoon? I'd say, sure, I'll come over to the nursing home. And let me tell you, breaking into the speaking business at a nursing home I mean, A, your material's not good, but you are getting nothing back from the crowd. And in some ways, it really prepared me for a life of speaking to people <laughs> who are often asleep. <laughs> but out of that, that experience came this sort of sense, and I don't recommend this, but this is true, came the sense that I'm supposed to say yes. I, I call it the theology of opportunity. That if God gives me the opportunity, I'm supposed to say yes to that. And that's, uh, I'm not sure that's a good idea. At this stage of my life, I, I think, I, I'm pretty sure I need to stop saying yes. I got a call a few weeks ago, and uh, it was somebody from our district who said, we would like to have you join the district finance committee. 
well, could you just beat me with a stick and call it good? I mean, because I can't think of anything that sounds worse than that. So I said, well, how often do you meet? Once a month. Oh, okay. And how long are the meetings? Oh, they're two to three hours. What? You guys don't have that much money. I mean, I mean, how could it take that long? But you know what I said? Yes. Two months into the process, it's worse than I thought. But you know, there's a sense of that where, isn't that the scarcity? There's not enough of me to say yes to things that are needed. But, but isn't there some place in us that, that the decision to jump in is always going to revolve around scarcity? That when we sense God speaking to us, that there's going to be a part of us that say, I can't do that. I don't have the talent for that. I don't have the resource for that. I don't have the time for that. I don't have the energy for that. And the decision to jump in is always centered somewhere in scarcity. The second thing that I notice is this. The decision is rooted in sacrifice. That it's the very place of scarcity where the woman is asked to sacrifice. It's the very place where she's most stressed out that Elijah says, that's what I'm going to need from you. And that's what serving is. That, that's what it means to jump in. That's what it means to make it. That's what it means to stop spectating and pontificating and getting involved. It takes sacrifice. Something is given up. Something is surrendered. Something is let go of. It's not easy. I, I love it when people say, well, if it's God's will, it'll feel better. No, it often doesn't. <laughs> in fact, if it's God's will, often it's very difficult Sometimes when it's God's will, it's because we're going against the current. We're going against the grain. It's so much easier to post about it on Facebook. I know Facebook's not a thing anymore. It's so much easier to tweet about it or Instagram it. (laughs) But getting involved, jumping in, making a difference, it always requires sacrifice. The third thing I notice is this. The decision to jump in revolves around faith. So to offset the scarcity and the sacrifice, this woman is told, but God will continually supply the flour and the oil. I don't know about you, but if I'm the woman, I'm having a hard time embracing this promise at this moment. That I've been on this journey for all of this time and I have tried and I have figured out and I have finagled and I have gotten enough flour and I've gotten enough oil and we're still alive. But, but at no point in this time period did I feel secure or comfortable or feel like things were working out or it was looking up or more optimistic about the future. And now I'm down to the very last little bit and I'm gathering a few sticks and I'm going to make this and then I'm going to die. And at this moment... Couldn't have been three years ago when there was a little something, something still in the pot. (laughs) It's now in this moment of scarcity and sacrifice that she's approached and said, listen, why don't you go ahead and make me a little cake, but then God's going to take care of you. Now, I don't know about you, but it seems to me that the biblical promise is that God's going to take care of us. Amen? My God will supply all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. I have a hard time embracing the truth of that. Anybody else? 
because my scarcity and my sacrifice annoy me. He will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are fixed on him. Well, my, my mind tends to fix on scarcity and sacrifice much more than faith. And so if I'm going to jump in, it's because I somehow believe that God is going to meet my sacrifice and the scarcity that I sense and see. And it may not be easy, but that there is faith to believe that God is in this with me. And then the fourth thing is true, too. The decision to jump in involves journeying. I'd like to leave this one out, but it is a part of the story. Because I wish that the way it worked was when we embrace and we, we look at our scarcity and we're willing to sacrifice and we embrace our faith. I wish this, this last point was the decision to jump in always involves reward. Wouldn't that be a better way to tie this sermon up? Amen. I mean, that'd be so good. And God intends for you to be rich and beautiful, and, and he just intends for you to have everything you want. Amen? See, if I could preach that sermon, I'd be on TV. <laughs> I'd have subscribers. <laughs> but that's not what happens in the story. What happens in the story is the decision to get involved involves journeying, which means it involves some good days and some bad days. It involves some times when you go, oh, wow, I can see that my sacrifice and faith are being honored and there are results. We're going to follow this story with Elijah. This woman's role in the story ends here in chapter 17. Elijah's story is going to go on and we're going to journey with him. And I want to tell you this, the scarcity and the sacrifice and the faith are going to break this man down over time. And we're going to find him eventually sitting under a tree wishing to die because the journey is not easy. And I know I'm selling it to you in a big way. <laughs> but you got to know this. There is always pain in this process. To, 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 to be human is to acknowledge that life is imperfect. That in this journey, not everything goes the way we wish or we hope. I, I wish for every time we embraced the scarcity and we sacrificed and we walked by faith, that there was an immediate reward. Don't you think people, I mean, I love the idea of prosperity theology. You give God a little and he'll give you back a hundredfold. That's awesome. And I wish it was true. Don't, can you imagine if you wrote a check and put it in the offering plate on a weekend and you received 10 times that during the week, wouldn't you give a little some something the next week? Amen? That's not faith. That's just good investing sense. But in my experience and in the biblical story, that's not how I see it working. Well, how I see it working is... This involves journeying. It involves getting up every day and sticking to the commitment and continuing to be involved and continuing to make a difference and continuing to walk the journey. And you walk the journey on good days and you walk the journey when the child is sick and you walk the journey when there are miracles and you walk the journey when there are no miracles and you walk the journey 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 and you keep walking the journey and you walk the journey because it's the right thing to do. Because God calls us to be salt and light. He doesn't call us to perpetuate our own existence. He calls us to make a difference in the world. And, and, and I'm going to tell you this. What we do here as we gather is to equip 
and be challenged to go out and be the church. This, this is just the gathering of the called out ones. Church happens out there. In here, we just get filled up to go out there and make a difference in the world. We are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. And if you say to me, well, listen, here's where I'm jumping in. I'm jumping in with my family. Good. That's a very good place to start jumping in. Amen? Amen. I mean, if you're jumping in with your family, jump in with both feet and do it well. Commit yourself to it and be great at it. We need it. This culture desperately needs people who jump in with their families. If you say, well, I'm jumping in at work. Great. Jump in at work. So many places where we work, whether you're teaching kids in school or, 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 or serving in some other capacity where you can jump in. You, you don't have to have some specialized ministry to jump in. You can jump in in many of the places where you're already walking. It's just a little change of mindset of going, I'm not just working. <laughs> I'm here to make a difference in the culture, in the world, to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world, to be a little expression of God's love. Maybe you coach, maybe you're a little league coach, and you're, that's really jumping in. <laughs> There's so many places that you don't have to jump in in a ministry in the church, but it's the task and it's the vision and it's the purpose of the kingdom of Jesus Christ to build rails upon which love and grace and compassion can run. But it's up to us, the participants in the kingdom, to jump in, to get involved, to see ourselves as ambassadors of reconciliation and to make a difference in the world. And so in this little series, we're just going to talk about what that might look like. And I just want to ask you this question. If you were just to bow your head and close your eyes and, and say, God, would you show me in what way am I jumping in? What do you think God would single out in your life? What do you think he would highlight? Because those are the questions we want to ask. Maybe you're already involved in something and God's saying, I want you to twist it just a little. <laughs> I want you to tweak it just with a little different attitude, a little different perspective, because you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world, and you can make a difference. We can make a difference. We're called and commissioned to change the world in Jesus' name. There's a great quote I want to leave with you. It's from attributed to Teddy Roosevelt. I don't know if he actually said it or not, but whether he did or not, it's a great quote. Here it is. It's not the critic who counts, not the person who points out how the strong person stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the person who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasm, the great devotions, who spends themselves in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if they fail, at least fails while daring greatly, so that their place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. You and I, we're invited to be a part of something so much bigger than us. We're invited to be a part of the kingdom of God. I invite you, as we think about it over these next few weeks, to jump in. God, would you help us? 
Would you speak to us about our role, our task, our calling, our mission? Would you help us to overcome our sense of scarcity, whether it's about our own abilities or time or energy? We don't have to say yes to everything. You've given us a heart and a mind and a spirit to be discerning. But God, I pray that in this process, you would challenge us to not be spectators in our world. And by all means, to not be pontificators. But to genuinely, with our whole heart and mind and spirit, to open our eyes and throw our arms wide open. And to see where you are calling each of us in our own way to jump in. These words are the prayer of our heart. And we sing them to you in response and ask you to do your work in each of us. We pray it in Jesus' name. And everybody said together, amen. amen. Will you stand as we respond to the word? Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.